are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. The Sapphire Planet. Another major industry of the Industrial Revolution was gas lighting. Though others made a similar innovation elsewhere, The large-scale introduction of this was the work of William Murdoch, an employee of Bolton and Watt, the Birmingham steam engine pioneers. The process consisted of the large-scale gasification of coal in furnaces, the purification of the gas, which was the removal of sulfur, ammonia, and heavy hydrocarbons, and its storage and distribution. The first gas lighting utilities were established in London between 1812 and 1820. They soon became one of the major consumers of coal in the United Kingdom. Gas lighting had an impact on social an industrial organization because it allowed factories and stores to remain open longer than with tallow candles or oil. Its introduction allowed nightlife to flourish in cities and towns as interiors and streets could be lighted on a larger scale than before. Another innovation of the Industrial Revolution was glassmaking, a new method of producing glass known as the cylinder process was developed in Europe during the early 19th century. In 1832, this process was used by the Chance Brothers to create 
sheet glass. They became the leading producers of window and plate glass. This advancement allowed for larger panes of glass to be created without interruption, thus freeing up the space planning in in interiors, as well as the fenestration of buildings. The Crystal Palace is the supreme example of the use of sheet glass in a new and innovative structure. Likewise, a machine for making a continuous sheet of paper on a loop of wire fabric was patented in 1798 by Nicholas Louis Roberts, who worked for saint Legard de Dau family in France. The paper machine is known as the Fordinere after the financiers brother Seeley and Henry Fordinere, who were stationers in London. Although greatly improved and with many variations, the Fordinere machine is the predominant means of paper production to this day. The method of continuous production demonstrated by the paper machine influenced the development of other continuous rolling and other continuous production processes. The invention of machinery played a big part in driving forward the British agricultural revolution. Agricultural improvement began in the centuries before the Industrial Revolution and it may have played a part in freeing up labor from the land to work in the new industrial mills of the 18th century. As the revolution in industry progressed, a succession of machines became available, which increased food production with even fewer laborers. Jethro Tull's seed drill invented in 1701 was a mechanical seeder which distributed seeds efficiently across a plot of land. This was important because the yield of seeds harvested to seed planted at that time was around four or five. Joseph Foljam's Rotherham plow of 1730 was the first commercially successful iron plow. The threshing machine, invented by Andrew Melkel in 1784, displaced hand threshing with a flail, a laborious job that took about one quarter of agricultural labor. It took several decades to diffuse and was the final straw for many farm laborers who faced near starvation, leading to the 1830 Agricultural Rebellion of the Swing Riots. Other developments included more efficient water wheels based on experiments conducted by the British engineer John Smeaton, the beginnings of machinery industry and the rediscovery of concrete based on hydraulic lime mortar by John Smeaton 
which had been lost to civilization for 1,300 years. At the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, inland transport was by navigable river and roads, with coastal vessels employed to move heavy goods by sea. Railways or wagons were used for conveying coal to rivers for further shipment, but canals had not yet been constructed. Animals supplied all the motive power on land with sails providing the motive power on the sea. The Industrial Revolution improved Britain's transport infrastructure with a turnpike road network, a canal and waterway network, and a railroad network. Raw materials and finished products could be moved more quickly and cheaply than before. Improved transportation also allowed new ideas to spread quickly. Building of canals dates back to ancient times. The Grand Canal in China, for example, the world's largest artificial waterway and oldest canal still in existence, parts of which were started between the 6th and 4th century B.C., is 1,120 miles long, or 1,800 kilometers, and links Hangzhou with Beijing. Canals were the first technology to allow bulk materials to be easily transported across the country, coal being a common commodity. A single canal horse could pull a load dozens of times larger than a cart at a faster pace. Canals began to be built in the late 18th century to link the major manufacturing centers across the country. Known for its huge commercial success, the Bridgewater Canal in northwest England, which opened in 1761, and was mostly funded by the third Duke of Bridgewater. From Worsley to the rapidly growing towns of Manchester, its construction cost 168,000 pounds, or $21 million in today's dollars. But its advantages over land and river transport meant that within a year of its opening in 1761, the price of coal in Manchester fell by about half. This success helped inspire a period of intense canal building known as Canal Mania. New canals were hastily built in the aim of replicating the commercial success of the Bridgewater Canal, the most notable being the Leeds and Liverpool Canal and the Thames and Severn Canal which opened in 1774 and 1789, respectfully. By the 1820s, a national network was in existence. Canal construction served as a model 
for the organization and methods later used to construct the railways. They were eventually largely superseded as profitable commercial enterprises by the spread of the railways from the 1840s on. The last major canal to be built in the United Kingdom was the Manchester Ship Canal, which upon opening in 1894 was the largest ship canal in the world and opened Manchester as a port. However, it never achieved the commercial success its sponsors had hoped for and signaled canals as a dying mode of transportation in an age dominated by railways, which were quicker and often cheaper. Nevertheless, Britain's canal network, together with its surviving mill buildings, is one of the most enduring features of the early Industrial Revolution to be seen in Britain. Much of the original British road system was poorly maintained by thousands of local parishes but from the 1720s, turnpike trusts were set up to charge tolls and maintain some roads. Increasing numbers of main roads were turnpiked from the 1750s to the extent that almost every main road in England and Wales was the responsibility of a turnpike trust. New engineered roads were built by John Metcalf, Thomas Telford, and most notably John McAdam, as the first macadamized stretch of road being Marsh Road at Ashton Gate, Bristol, in 1816. The major turnpikes radiated from London and were the means by which the Royal Mail was able to reach the rest of the country. Heavy goods transport on these roads was by means of slow, broad-wheeled carts hauled by teams of horses. Lighter goods were conveyed by smaller carts or by teams of pack horses. Stage coaches carried the rich, and the less wealthy could pay to ride on carrier carts. Wagonways for moving coal in the mining areas had started in the 17th century and were often associated with canal or river systems for the further movement of coal. These were all horse-drawn or relied on gravity with a stationary steam engine to haul the wagons back to the top of the incline. The first application of the steam locomotive were on wagon or plateways, as they were often called from the cast iron plates used. Horse-drawn public railways did not begin until the early years of the 19th century, when improvements, pig and wrought iron productions were lowering costs. 
Reducing friction was one of the major reasons for the success of the railroads compared to wagons. Steam locomotives began being built after the introduction of high-pressure steam engines around the year 1800. These engines exhausted used steam into the atmosphere, doing away with the condenser and cooling water. They were also much lighter weight and smaller in size for a given horsepower than the stationary condensing engines. A few of these early locomotives were used in mines. Steam-hauled public railways began with the Stockton and Darlington Railway in 1825. On September 15, 1830, the Liverpool and Manchester Railway was opened, the first inner-city railway in the world, and was attended by Prime Minister the Duke of Wellington. The railway was engineered by Joseph Locke and George Stevenson, linked the rapidly expanding industrial town of Manchester with the port town of Liverpool. The opening was marred by problems due to the primitive nature of technology being employed. However, problems were gradually ironed out and the railways became highly successful transporting passengers and freight. The success of the inner-city railways, particularly in the transport of freight and commodities, led to railway mania. Construction of major railways connecting the larger cities and towns began in the 1830s, but only began gaining momentum at the very end of the first industrial revolution. After many of the workers had completed the railways, they did not return to their rural lifestyles, but instead remained in the cities, providing additional workers for the factories. The history of the change of living conditions during the Industrial Revolution has been very controversial and was the topic that from the 1950s to the 1980s caused the most heated debate among economic and social historians. A series of essays by historians in the 1950s gained the consensus that the bulk of the population that was at the bottom of the social ladder suffered severe reductions in their living standards. Chronic hunger and malnutrition were the norm for the majority of the population of the world, including Britain and France, until the latter part of the 19th century. Until about 1750, in large part due to malnutrition, life expectancy in France was about 35 years and only slightly higher in Britain. The U.S. population at the time was adequately fed, were much taller and had a life expectancy of 45 to 50 years. 
In Britain and the Neanderthal in the Netherlands, food supply had been increasing and prices falling before the Industrial Revolution due to better agricultural practices. However, population was increasing as well, as noted by Thomas Malthus. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, advances in agriculture or technology soon led to an increase in population, which again strained food and other resources, limiting increases in per capita income. This condition was called the Malthusian Trap, and it was finally overcome by industrialization. Transportation improvements, such as canals and improved roads, also lowered food costs. Railroads were introduced near the end of the first Industrial Revolution. Living conditions during the Industrial Revolution varied from the splendor of the homes of the owners to the squalor of the lives of the workers. In the book, The Condition of the Working Class in England, printed in 1844, written by Frederick Engels, described backstreet sections of Manchester and other mill towns where people lived in crude shanties and shacks, some not being completely enclosed, some with dirt floors. These shanty towns had narrow walkways between irregularly shaped lots and dwellings. Sanitary facilities were non-existent. These slum areas had extremely high population densities. It was common for groups of unrelated mill workers to share rooms in very low-quality housing, where eight to ten people may occupy a single room, which often had no furniture, with the occupant sleeping on a pile of straw or sawdust. These homes would share toilet facilities, have open sewers, and would be at risk of developing pathological associated with persistent dampness. Disease was spread through a contaminated water supply. Conditions did improve during the 19th century as public health acts were introduced, covering such things as sewage, hygiene, and making some boundaries upon the construction of homes. Not everybody lived in homes like these. The Industrial Revolution created a larger middle class of professionals, such as lawyers and doctors. Health conditions improved over the course of the 19th century because of better sanitation. The famines that troubled rural areas did not happen in industrial areas. However, urban people, especially small children, died due to disease spreading through the cramped living conditions. Tuberculosis spread in congested dwellings, lung disease from mines, cholera from polluted water, and typhoid were also common. 
According to Robert Hughes in The Fatal Shore, the population of England and Wales, which had remained steady at 6 million from 1700 to 1740, rose dramatically after 1740. The population of England had more than doubled from 8.3 million in 1801 to 16.8 million in 1850 and, by the year 1901, had nearly doubled again to 30.5 million. As living conditions and health care improved during the 19th century, Britain's population doubled every 50 years. Europe's population increased from about 100 million in the year 1700 to 400 million by the year 1900. In the terms of social structure, the Industrial Revolution witnessed the triumph of a middle class of industrialists and businessmen over a landed class of nobility and gentry. Ordinary working people found increased opportunities for employment in the new mills and factories, but these were often under strict working conditions with long hours of labor dominated by a pace set by machines. As late as the year 1900, most industrial workers in the United States still worked a 10-hour day, 12 hours if you worked in the steel industry, yet earned from 20 to 40% less than the minimum deemed necessary for a decent life. However, harsh working conditions were prevalent long before the Industrial Revolution took place. Pre-industrial society was very static and often cruel. Child labor, dirty living conditions, and long working hours were just as prevalent before the Industrial Revolution. Industrialization led to the creation of the factory. Arguably, the first was John Loam's water power silk mill at Derby, operational by the year 1721. However, the rise of the factory came somewhat later, when cotton spinning was mechanized. The factory system was largely responsible for the rise of the modern city, as large numbers of workers migrated into cities in search of employment in the factories. Nowhere was this better illustrated than the mills and associated industries in Manchester, nicknamed Cottonopolis, and the world's first industrial city. For much of the 19th century, production was done in small mills, which were typically water-powered and built to serve local needs. Later, each factory would have its own steam engine 
and a chimney to give an efficient draft through its boiler. The transition to industrialization was not without difficulty. For example, a group of English workers known as Luddites formed to protest against industrialization and sometimes sabotage factories. In other industries, the transition to factory production was not so divisive. Some industrialists themselves tried to improve factory and living conditions for their workers. One of the earliest such reformers was Robert Owen, known for his pioneering efforts in improving conditions for workers at the New Lanark Mills, and often regarded as one of the key thinkers of the early socialist movement. By 1746, an integrated brass mill was working at Warmley near Bristol. Raw materials went in at one end, was smelted into brass, and turned into pans, pins, wire, and other goods. Housing was provided for the workers on site. Josiah Wedgwood and Matthew Bolton, whose Soho manufactory was completed in 1766, were other prominent early industrialists who employed the factory system. The Industrial Revolution led to a population increase, but the chances of surviving childhood did not improve throughout the Industrial Revolution, although infant mortality rates were reduced substantially. There was still limited opportunity for education, and children were expected to work. Employers could pay a child less than an adult, even though their productivity was comparable. There was no need for strength to operate an industrial machine, and since the industrial system was completely new, there were no experienced adult laborers. This made child labor the labor of choice for manufacturing in the early phases of the Industrial Revolution between the 18th and 19th century. In England and Scotland in the year 1788, two-thirds of the workers in 143 water-powered cotton mills were children. Child labor had existed before the Industrial Revolution, but with the increase in population and education, it became more visible. Many children were forced to work in relatively bad conditions for much lower pay than their elders. 10 to 20% less than an adult male's wage. Children as young as four were employed. Beatings and long hours were common, with some child coal miners and hurriers 
working from 4 a.m. until 5 p.m. Conditions were dangerous, with some children killed when they dozed off and fell into the path of carts, while others died from gas explosions. Many children developed lung cancer and other diseases and died before the age of 25. Workhouses would sell orphans and abandoned children as pauper apprentices, working without wages for board and lodging. Those who ran away would be whipped and returned to their masters, with some masters shackling them to prevent escape. Children, employed as mule scavenger by cotton mills, would crawl under machinery to pick up cotton, working 14 hours a day, six days a week. Some lost hands or limbs, others were crushed under the machines, and some were decapitated. Young girls worked at match factories where phosphorus fumes would cause many to develop fossy jaw. Children employed at glassworks were regularly burned and blinded, and those working at potteries were vulnerable to poisonous clay dust. Reports were written detailing some of the abuses particularly in the coal mines and textile factories. These helped to popularize the children's plight. The public outcry, especially among the upper and middle classes, helped stir change in the young workers' welfare. Politicians and the government tried to limit child labor by law, but factory owners resisted. Some felt they were aiding the poor by giving their children money to buy food to avoid starvation, and others simply welcomed the cheap labor. In 1833 and 1844, the first general laws against child labor the Factory Acts were passed in Britain. Children, younger than nine, were not allowed to work. Children were not permitted to work at night, and the workday of a youth under the age of 18 was limited to 12 hours. Factory inspectors supervised the execution of the law. However, their scarcity made enforcement difficult. About ten years later, the employment of children and women in mining was forbidden. These laws decreased the number of child laborers. However, child labor remained in Europe and the United States up to the 20th century. 
The rapid industrialization of the English economy cost many craft workers their jobs. The movement started first with lace and hosiery workers near Nottingham and spread to other areas of the textile industry owing to earlier industrialization. These new Luddites, many of them weavers, also found themselves suddenly unemployed. And since they could no longer compete with machines, which only required relatively limited and unskilled labor to produce more cloth than a single weaver. Many such unemployed workers, weavers and others, turned their animosity towards the machines that had taken their jobs and began destroying the factories and machinery. These attackers became known as Luddites, supposedly followers of Ned Ludd, a folklore figure. The first attacks of the Luddite movement began in 1811. The Luddites rapidly gained popularity, and the British government took drastic measures, using the militia or army to protect industry. Those rioters who were caught were tried or hanged or transported for life to Australia. Unrest continued in other sectors as they industrialized as well, such as with agricultural labors in the 1830s, when large parts of southern Britain were affected by the Captain Swing disturbances. Threshing machines were a particular target, and hayrick burning was a popular activity. However, the riots led to the first formation of trade unions and further pressure for reform. The Industrial Revolution concentrated labor into mills, factories, and mines, thus facilitating the organization of combinations or trade unions to help advance the interests of working people. The power of a union could demand better terms by withdrawing all labor and causing a consequent cessation of production. Employers had to decide between giving in to the union demands at a cost to themselves or suffering the costs of lost production. Skilled workers were hard to replace and these were the first groups to successfully advance their condition through this kind of bargaining. The main method the unions used to effect change was strike action. Many strikes were painful events for both sides, the unions and the management. In Britain, the Combination Act of 1799 forbade workers to form any kind of trade union until its repeal 25 years later in 1825. Even after this repeal, unions 
were still very restricted. In 1832, the year of the Reform Act, which extended the vote in Britain but did not grant universal suffrage, six men from the total puddle in Dorset founded the Friendly Society of Agricultural Laborers to protest against the gradual lowering of wages in the 1830s. They refused to work for less than 10 shillings a week, although by this time wages had been reduced to 7 shillings a week and were due to be further reduced to 6 shillings. In 1834, James Frampton, a local landowner, wrote to the Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, to complain about the Union, invoking an obscure law from 1797, prohibiting people from swearing oaths to each other, which the members of the Friendly Society had done. James Brine, James Hammett, George Lovelace, George's brother James Lovelace, and George's brother-in-law Thomas Stanfield, and Thomas's son John Stanfield, were arrested, found guilty, and transported to Australia. They became known as the Tollpuddle Martyrs. In the 1830s and 1840s, the Cherist Movement was the first large-scale organized working-class political movement which campaigned for political equality and social justice. Its Charter of Reforms received over three million signatures, but was rejected by Parliament without consideration. Unions slowly overcame legal restrictions on the right to strike. In 1842, a general strike involving cotton workers and colliers were organized through the Cherist movement, which stopped production across Great Britain. Eventually, effective political organization for working people was achieved through the trade unions who after the extensions of the franchise in 1867 and 1885, began to support socialist political parties that later merged to become the British Labour Party. There are other effects that the Industrial Revolution gave the application of steam power to the industrial process of printing supported a massive expansion of newspaper and popular book publishing, which reinforced rising literacy and demands for mass political participation. During the Industrial Revolution, the life expectancy of children increased dramatically. The percentage of children born in London who died before the age of five, decreased from 74% in 1730 to 1749 to 31% from 1810 
1829. The growth of modern industry from the late 18th century onward led to massive urbanization and the rise of new great cities, first in Europe and then in other regions, as new opportunities brought huge numbers of migrants from rural communities into urban areas. In the year 1800, only 3% of the world's population lived in cities, a figure that has risen to nearly 50% at the beginning of 21st century. In 1717, Manchester was merely a market town of 10,000 people, but by 1911, it had a population of 2.3 million. The greatest killer in the cities was tuberculosis, also known as TB. By the late 1800s, approximately 7 out of 10 city dwellers in Europe and North America were infected with TB. 40% of deaths among the urban working class were from tuberculosis. But the Industrial Revolution did not stop in Britain, its birthplace. It was a fire that spread worldwide the Industrial Revolution on the continental Europe came a little later than in Great Britain. In many industries, this involved the application of technology developed in Britain in new places. Often, the technology was purchased from Britain or British engineers and entrepreneurs moved abroad in search of new opportunities. By 1809, part of the rural valley in Westphalia was called Miniature England because of its similarities to the industrial areas of England. The German, Russian, and Belgium governments all provided state funding to the new industries. In some cases, such as iron, the different availability of resources locally meant that only some aspects of the British technology were adapted. Your journey is now ending. are now leaving the Sapphire Planet.
Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.